You are listening to a message from Adam Reardon at Redemption Church in Belvedere, Illinois. At Redemption Church, we are all about introducing people into a growing relationship with Jesus. If you would like more information, check us out online at redemption.cc. Now stay tuned for today's message. Luke chapter 23, uh, starting in verse 32, Jesus has been falsely tried. He has been beaten and scourged. He has had to carry his cross, and he now is on the cross in our place for our sin. Luke chapter 22, or 23, verse 32. It says, the two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified him and the criminals, one at his right and one on his left. Now let's just stop there for one second. Like, the gospel writers take time to let us know what the place of the crucifixion was like, and it's called the skull. And the reason that they say that, other gospel writers call it Golgotha, which means the place that looks like the skull. And that's not an awesome place. Like, nobody's going on Expedia going, hey, I want to visit there. Like, unless you're a pirate, that doesn't sound like a great place to be, and it's because nothing good happens there. And so the scripture writers give us time to help us to understand what the setting is like and what's going on there. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. You know, one of the things that's interesting is the Roman government in cahoots with the Pharisees and the Sadducees are trying to shut down Jesus, his teaching, the entire movement of Christianity. And yet, isn't it interesting that in this process, they take time to gamble for his clothing? Like, they, 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 there's something about Jesus that they know that there's something at least significant enough that they go, hey, uh, wouldn't it be awesome if we could have a, a little bit of a, a take-home? Like, if we could take some sort of souvenir to say we were there. Verse 35. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, he saves others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you that today you will be with me in paradise. It was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last breath. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all of the crowds that had assembled for his spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. 
It's biblical language for understanding they were a part of something wrong. They left saying that that was not what we thought it would be. What happened shouldn't have happened. And all his acquaintances, that's being Jesus' acquaintances, and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea, and he was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision in action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in a stone where no one had ever been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And they returned and prepared spices and ointments. And on the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandments of God. As we kind of spend some time together, I want to kind of frame this up this way. I want you to kind of emotionally connect with this idea tonight. So we'll start like this. How many of you have ever maybe taken a journey, a vacation? Maybe it's even just like your daily commute to work. But how many of you have ever decided you're going to go somewhere, but you underestimated how long it would take you to get from point A from point B? You ever done that before? Like I I, uh, work both for Redemption Church and for the the YMCA, and uh, there's times I underestimate uh, how long it'll take me uh, to get here in five minutes. Hey, uh, quick thing, one of the ushers, a, a group of guys just walked in, thanks. Okay, because the YMCA is closed. All right, um, and so we did this one time a couple years ago. We, we took a vacation to uh, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Someone had given us a timeshare, and so my wife and I with our young kids hopped in the car, and, and we were gonna drive to Myrtle Beach, which was awesome, and so we did all the, the homework, and we set a course, and, and from our, the edge of our driveway to where we were gonna show up was supposed to be 15 hours with no stops. Now with two young kids, we knew it was impossible to make no stops. In fact, we planned to make stops all along the way. So we did what anybody in the 21st century would do. We, we plugged everything into the GPS and we set our course. And, and this thing happens, if you travel through the US, there's these continental divides and there's some states, which I don't even understand, I think it's crazy, but there's some states that you can like drive through the state and the time zone changes like two times in the same state, which I don't know how that, that, like that one state even like knows what the other half of the state is doing because our GPS got confused. And so there was a gap between the clock and our car and the clock on the GPS. And and so like as our young sons on their first trip who were just tired of being in the car, like any kid would ask is, are we there yet? And how much longer? And you know, the longer in the car, the more frequently that happens. And so like we had a countdown going and we were finally at the point where we were like, guys, like 20 more minutes, 10 more minutes, 15 more minutes, five more minutes. And then we realized that the GPS clock and the clock in our car were not in sync. And we pulled out our cell phones and pulled up Google Maps and realized we had over an hour left on the trip. See, now those of you that have been there before, you know my pain. Because here's what I would tell you. That last hour was more painful than the first 15. Like it was emotionally exhausting. Uh, My kids, even though they did fantastic on their first trip, asked, are we there yet and how much longer every 1.2 minutes? And it was physically painful. Like for me, it like hurt to be in the car for any longer. And it was like one of those things that when we like finally got to where we were going, we had to rest from the journey just to get there. 
Now, here's why I bring that up, is because we tend to underestimate the distance that exists between God and us. And here's what I mean about that. The scriptures say in Genesis, God created all things and they were good. As he designed them, as he wanted them to be, no sin, no death, no separation, no sickness. Everything was good and was in the presence and the glory of God. And God being a great God told Adam and Eve, all of this is yours. All of this is for you. All of this is for your good. There's just one thing that's not. And so this one thing that isn't good for you, I need you to trust me. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All of it you can have except this one thing. And what the scripture records for us is in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve rebel against God. They decide that their way is better than God's way. They decide that they would rather be friends with Satan than friends with God. They decide it would be better for them to do life according to their own standard than the standard of God. And what the scripture says is in that moment, sin and rebellion and separation entered the world. And this is the same sin, the same separation, the same shame that you and I deal with today. It plagues our lives, our minds, our decisions, our hearts. In fact, the prophet Isaiah says it this way. In Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2, he says, But your iniquities, that's just another word for sin, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. That according to the scriptures, there's a separation between us and God. And if we're completely honest, like if we were to kind of pull back the curtain tonight, I think we would all admit that there's been times in our lives where we've experienced that separation, where we felt far from God, times that we've wondered why God doesn't feel as close as we would want him to feel, and it's because one of the penalties for sin is separation from God, distance in that relationship. And see, what happens is when we underestimate the distance that exists between us and God, what happens is we fall into this trap where we try to, in our own strength, by our own power, in our own might, we try to bridge the gap. So we do things like we try to be good. Hey, if I just do the right things, and if I'm good, and if I don't get in trouble, like there's certain things that are okay, and then there's this other list of things that aren't okay, so if I just don't do the things on the list that aren't okay, like then I should be okay. And like the way we kind of justify that is when we think about being good is we all know one person who's worse than us and so we use them as like the litmus test, right? Well, I'm at least better than that guy. So we try to be good. We try to do good. We try to go, well, hey, maybe if I can check a few good deeds off my list, then maybe I can earn the love and the attention of God. We do things like try to wear the right clothes and listen to the right music and vote the right party and back the right candidate. We do things like we don't drink, we don't smoke, we don't chew, and we don't date girls that do, and we think somehow that'll get God's attention. And when maybe we feel like that stuff doesn't work, there's times when we try to get really religious. Like, hey, if we would just follow the rules of God, like we, we try to follow this, we try to get in this sweet spot where we go, hey, can I go to church enough that somehow it makes God happy and I feel really good about myself? And maybe if I can figure out that secret combination of, of going to church and that kind of stuff, then maybe God would be happy and I would be good enough. And see, the problem is none of that works. The problem is none of that solves the problem. The problem is all these attempts are worthless and futile. 
It would be like you and I going to California and standing on the sandy beach of California with a stepladder trying to bridge the gap between California and Hawaii with our extension ladder, hoping that somehow it would be strong enough and long enough to bridge the gap, but it's not. It won't work. It'll never reach all the way. The gap is too big and the ladder is too short. And see, on Good Friday, we remember and we treasure and we celebrate. We put our trust and our confidence in that Jesus died in our place for our sins. Now, this time of year, there's something interesting that's happened, at least in my lifetime, and maybe this is true for your lifetime, is it seems like this year there are more Cubs fans on the face of the planet than there's ever been before. Am I right? Everybody seems to be a Cubs fan. And that's okay, because I think the hot dogs at Wrigley Field are great. I mean, I'm for that. But here's, here's the thing. There's certain things that when we see, we can see what's happening, but we kind of miss what's happening. Where there's other people who see what's happening and kind of interpret and see that there's more than what we see. And for me, that's baseball. Because like I see guys in uniforms hitting a ball, catching a ball, throwing a ball, and running bases. That's what I see. Now, there's other people that are baseball fans that see the statistics, like they know the batting averages. Like they don't count the score. They can tell you how many errors there were. They can tell you battering averages. They can talk about the batter's lineup and how they should make rotating people to make it better. I don't see that. I just see a score and guys playing baseball. And the reason I say that is because I think as we look at the cross, there's all kinds of things happening. And we probably don't realize all of them. And there's probably thousands and thousands and thousands of things that Jesus is doing and accomplishing for us. And yet I just want to talk about three tonight. Because I think as we focus in on these three, something really significant begins to happen in our hearts and in our lives. And see, as we look at Jesus dying on the cross in our place for our sins, one of the things that we see happening, one of the implications of the cross, one of the things that we can treasure and celebrate and put our trust in is that on the cross, Jesus takes our sin, our guilt, and our shame, and he places it upon himself. See, if you hang around church long enough, if you've ever read your Bible or hang out with Christian folks, like you'll hear the phrase that Jesus saves people, that people, Jesus saves people from their sin, and that's true. But according to the scripture, it's deeper than that. It's greater than that. It's not that, that Jesus just saves us from our sin. It's that Jesus literally takes every sin you have ever committed, past, present, future. He takes all of your sin and he removes them from you and he places them. He takes them upon himself. This is why it's so significant when Jesus enters the scene that John the Baptist, his cousin, points at Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God, that Jesus, the pure, spotless, holy, pure, innocent one, he who knew no sin would literally become our sin and take it on himself. And that Jesus would take upon himself the sin of the world. And that he would remove your sin, every sin, the sins that you haven't even had time to commit yet. And Jesus, who knew no sin, would take your sin and place them upon himself. And see, the reason that's so significant is because Jesus doesn't just save you from your sin. He takes away your sin. 
And in doing so, something really, really significant happens. When Jesus takes your sin and my sin and the sin of the world and places it upon himself, another thing happens that Jesus, in doing so, Jesus, in so doing of taking on our sins, he also receives the full anger and justice of wrath of God. That on the cross, Jesus takes the anger and the wrath of God that you and I deserve, and he refocuses God's attention. Instead of placing his wrath and his anger upon you and upon me, Jesus says, no, no, focus it in on me. Now here's the thing. Talking about God's anger and God's wrath is not a popular subject in our culture. In fact, you may be here tonight, and I I start talking about God's anger and wrath, and you're like, oh boy, here we go. But here's the thing. If you took all the scriptures about God's love in the Bible, and you took all the scriptures about God's anger and wrath in the Bible, do you know what? There's more about his wrath than there is about his love. And yet in the cross, we see a perfect mixture, like the perfect collision of God's anger and wrath in his love. In Exodus chapter 32 is Moses and the nation of Israel are trying to figure out what it means to look like, to follow God and have a relationship with God now that they've been delivered from Egypt. Exodus chapter 32 reveals to us that God is a God that in his heart, he burns with a white, hot anger and hatred towards sin. The easiest way to say it is like this, God hates sin. He is holy, he is perfect, he is righteous, and he can't just sweep it under the rug that God hates sin, he hates the effects of sin, he hates what sin does in the life of his people, and his heart burns with a holy hatred towards sin. And yet on the cross, as Jesus is on the cross in our place for our sin, it's meant to be a physical torture device. That the cross was literally designed by the Romans to inflict as much pain as possible for as long as humanly possible on a person. And yet for Jesus, I think there's this moment on the cross where other gospel writers tell us that Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, I think in that moment what happens is Jesus, who is holy, pure, and spotless, it's not that God doesn't love anymore. It's not that Jesus isn't fully God and fully man. It's not that the Holy Spirit still resides inside of him. But what happens is, is in that moment for the first time, Jesus receives the wrath and the anger of God that you and I deserve. And Jesus becomes and takes on the curse and the penalty that really belongs to you into me. And while the Romans designed the cross to be the most painful way of torture, I think when Jesus takes the wrath and the anger of God upon himself, the spiritual torment is greater at that moment than the physical torment because he takes all of our sin, your sin and my sin, and he absorbs the wrath of God. Now it's greater than that. There's more than that because not only does Jesus take our sin, but he also gives us what we do not deserve. That Jesus would not only absorb the wrath of God, but he would also give us his righteousness. That as he receives and takes our sin, Jesus gives us his righteousness. 
So that as God shifts his anger and his wrath to Jesus, what happens is he replaces that sin for those who believe in Jesus and repent of their sin with his righteousness so that those who believe God the Father looks on them and sees the holiness and the righteousness of his Son. That instead of experiencing wrath, that we would experience the love of God. That instead of experiencing the judgment that we deserve, we would rather be called sons and daughters of God all because of Jesus. Which leads to the third thing that happens. Is Jesus on the cross removes the distance between us and God and brings us near. That as Jesus is on the cross, he, it's like he reaches in and grabs us and pulls us close to God and says, I have bridged the gap. The distance has been dealt with and you can now draw near. That Jesus is our substitute. That in Christ, God's wrath is satisfied. And that Jesus can justify, make righteous those who believe in him. And Jesus' suffering is in our place. It's not that Jesus is forsaken with us. It's that Jesus is forsaken so that we never are forsaken. It's that Jesus takes our penalty so that we never are penalized. That Jesus takes the wrath so that we can be immune to God's wrath, that we will never face condemnation or hell or separation because Jesus took it for us and dealt with it. And when he died, all those things died with him. On Good Friday, we're reminded that we can be brought near to God, that there's no longer separation but relationship. We're reminded that in Christ, God is near and the kingdom of God is at hand and it belongs to those who believe. That we can live lives where we're close to God, where there's nothing, absolutely nothing that can separate us from the love of God. It means on Good Friday, we have an opportunity to look upon the cross. And as we look at Jesus, we can repent of our religion that we can realize that, that our attempts to earn God's love, our attempts to try to be good enough, our attempts to try to earn and leverage will never work. And we can trust and put our faith in that they don't work. That we can rest in Jesus. That it's never about achieving. It's never about trying to be good enough. It's never about trying to cross all the, the T's and dot all the I's and get the to-do list done so that somehow God would love us. It would mean that we don't have to be religious, that religion doesn't make us lovely. Jesus makes us lovely. It means that we should repent of our rebel attempts to bridge the gap on our own. The Good Friday is an opportunity for us to be reminded that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets to the Father except through Him. See, Good Friday is kind of an oxymoron. And the early church wrestled with it just like we wrestle with it. And maybe even this week as you had conversations about, hey, I'm going to go to a Good Friday service and people go, how is it that you celebrate that Jesus was crucified? Because let's be honest, for most of the people there, they thought that what they were doing was defeating Jesus. They thought as Jesus hung on the cross that he had been shut down, that, that he had been shut out, that, that this was over and that he was done. But we look at it from this side and we know that that's not true. That Jesus is greater than the cross that Jesus is greater than the grave, 
that the, for the first time in history, Jesus experienced death, but death also experienced Jesus for the first time. And so Good Friday is an opportunity for us not to make light of our sin, but to realize our sin is great. To be reminded that God would love us so much that we could look at the cross and be reminded, oh, how he loves us. That we are forgiven because he was forsaken. That we are accepted because he was condemned. That we become blessed because he took our curse. That for those who believe in Jesus and repent of their sin, that in this life there will be trouble. But he has overcome the world. That in this life for the believer, this is as close to hell as you will ever get. Because Jesus died on the cross in your place for your sin. Good Friday is an opportunity to treasure up who Jesus is. An opportunity to celebrate the love he has for us. And to also be reminded that we can love Jesus because he first loved us. Let me pray for us. Father God, we come before you today in the name of Jesus, and we do thank you for this day. God, I thank you for the opportunity just to be together in this place. And God, I thank you for all the people who got here early and set up, and this place is hot, and we're so thankful for the YMCA that lets us meet here, God. And we just pray that as we gather in this place, God, that you would stir up the affection of our hearts towards you. God, I pray that even, even now as we just spend time communicating with you, God, that you would bring our sin to mind so we can repent of it. God, I pray that you would crack open our hard hearts, that we would love you, and that we would want nothing more than to live our lives in response to your goodness and your love for us. So Jesus, we know that today as we gather, one of the truths that we cannot escape is that our sin is serious. And it cost you your life. And we thank you, Jesus, that you lay down your life so that we might be forgiven and free and made new. So Jesus, I pray that we would treasure these things up. Lord, I pray that in this moment that there's anybody in this room who is far from you, Anybody in this room who still has not trusted in you as Savior, I pray that today would be that day. I thank you that salvation is available to us, that salvation is at hand, that we can still call upon your name and be rescued from our sin and be made new. And Jesus, as we take communion tonight, I pray that we would treasure all these things up. I pray that we would rejoice in the promise that you made to us, that you would save us, that you would never leave us or forsake us, and that no matter what this world throws our way, you are greater, and that even though we struggle in this life, there will be a day that we see you, and there is a day that you are coming again, and you will make all things new. So Jesus, it's you we love. It's in you we trust. It's in you we give the glory. Jesus, it's in your great name that we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to this message from Redemption Church in Belvedere, Illinois, where we believe faith is a journey, not a guilt trip. Listen again next week 
But in the meantime, visit us at redemption.cc.